we don't always plan for the music to coincide and correspond so well with the sermon, and I trust that as we open up our text this morning, you'll see exactly why I say that. It's no accident in the providence of God, though it wasn't planned by us, that this summer we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about the Word of God. It's going to come from some unlikely sources and in some unlikely ways as we go through our study that uh, will begin this morning. A couple of weeks ago, as I mentioned earlier, you were reminded of the importance of Scripture and the Word of God. That's why we emphasize expository preaching. This morning, we're going to be introduced to a text, to a book of the Bible, that requires us to ask this question. It will require this of us each week. How will I respond to the Word of God? We're continuing a tradition we began last year. Can we call it a tradition if it's only been once? Where last year we took a pause during the summer from our current series, we've been going through Matthew for now over two years, to spend some time in the Old Testament. Whereas last year we studied the lesser known book of Haggai, we're going to turn this morning to a book that is very well known, Jonah, that prophet who had a whale of a time. It's Father's Day, I'm allowed one dad joke. This morning, I want to start by sketching the history and the context of this book. Before we begin our study, and this is really helpful when studying any book of the Bible, when we jump into this monumental text, and by that I refer to all of Scripture, to what are probably thousands of pages in your Bible in front of you, especially when we jump into the middle of this text, it is helpful to establish some context. Nowhere is this more true than perhaps the Old Testament. It's a foreign place for us. We're going to start this morning by reading the first three verses of Jonah, and then we're going to start laying the context. We're going to begin to introduce this book, the message of this book, and begin laying the foundation for our study. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Jonah. It's there that we begin reading in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray as we begin our study this morning. Father, we come before you recognizing that we have a task that as we begin to look at it this morning, we're going to realize how big of a task it is. We're entering into a book that is surprising. It is confusing. It is not at all what most people think it is. Father, as we seek to study it, I pray that your spirit would continue to guide us, that we would seek to be diligent students of Scripture, and most importantly, that we would seek 
to respond to the word of the Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. On the one hand, the book of Jonah is really feels like it needs no introduction, right? It's perhaps one of the most well-known books and stories in all of Scripture. But on the other hand, I think this familiarity conceals how little is known, or at least how much is misunderstood, and how unusual and peculiar this book actually is. To begin, I'd like us to start by developing the perspective of an ancient Israelite. You see, if you can't think like an ancient Israelite, and we're only going to get so far this morning, but if you cannot think like an ancient Israelite, you're going to miss the peculiar nature of this book. You're going to miss the oddness of this message. And so we're going to take some time to begin orienting ourselves into the mind of an ancient Israelite. The time of Jonah, or shortly after the time of Jonah, would have been during the reign of Jeroboam II, which was between 793 and 753 BC. Israel was still intact. It had not yet suffered this Assyrian deportation of 722 BC. And to put yourself into the story, you are living in northern Israel. Now I have some good news and some bad news for you living in northern Israel at this time. The bad news that is, is that as an Israelite, you are most likely, like your fellow Israelites at the time, following after your ungodly and wicked king, Jeroboam II. In fact, if you would, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 14. Second Kings 14 describes Jeroboam's reign in short, as well as the people. Look down at verse 24 and we read, He, that is Jeroboam, did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, that is the first Jeroboam, his father, which he made Israel sin. The good news, on the other hand, is that despite your wickedness and the wickedness of your king, you are enjoying a time of national prosperity. In fact, you have probably convinced yourself that God really doesn't care how you act. He doesn't care how you live since you are well off. Look down in verse 25 of 1 Kings 14. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who is of Gath, Hephar. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. And so we see that God has alleviated this pain and this suffering. He has extended the borders of Israel under Jeroboam. Now, even though you, as an ancient Israelite living at this time, have experienced prosperity in your lifetime, there is still the threat of these Assyrians particularly the ancient city of Nineveh, though it's not currently the capital of Assyria, it's the figurehead for Assyria. It's the most ancient of the Assyrian cities. In fact, the names of Nineveh and Assyria are often used interchangeably to refer to one another. 
There's a great city in Assyria, much as the same way we talk about New York or Los Angeles in the United States. They are not the capital, but they are important cities. And at times, perhaps they influence even more influence over the country compared to even what takes place at our capital. Nineveh sits to the east of Israel, approximately 550 miles east of the port of Joppa, along the Tigris River in modern-day Iraq. More specifically, it sits in modern-day Mosul. There's even a mosque today for the prophet Jonah there in the city of Mosul. Nineveh is first mentioned in Genesis 10, 8 through 12, as a city established by Nimrod. After this, Nineveh does not appear again in the biblical text until Assyria's rise to power under Sennacherib in 2 Kings chapter 19. Now, this ancient city, and you being an ancient Israelite, you were somewhat familiar with this geography. You knew that it was estimated to be about three to four square miles, though you didn't measure it in miles. In addition to the walled portion, Nineveh can also refer to the surrounding environs, much like when I travel and someone asks me where I'm from, I say I'm from Atlanta, even though I'm 40 miles outside of Atlanta. The exact size of the greater province is unknown, though it definitely included cities that were at least 22 miles away. Though you are in Israel, you're living in a time that there was a great deal of upheaval going on in Assyria. The Assyrian Empire had experienced great expansion about 150 years earlier under King Adad-Narari. But it took a downward turn about 100 years ago at the end of Shalmaneser III's reign because upon his death, the focus shifted from empire expansion to internal power struggles that erupted between the old nobility and the newer aristocracy, between the military and the governors and the frontier provinces. Everybody was fighting for power. It will not be until Tiglath-Pilsar III takes the throne after Jeroboam II's death, a few years after you're living, that this period of decline will reverse. Jonah's mission to Nineveh was almost certainly during this time of national decline and upheaval within Assyria. In fact, you would have also have heard reports during Jeroboam II's reign that Assyria was enduring a famine which lasted for six years. Also, there had just been a full solar eclipse in 763 BC, and well, these superstitious Assyrians had interpreted it as a bad omen from the gods. The Syrians were in rough shape, which personally you don't really mind. I mean, they aren't the good guys. You don't really care that a solar eclipse and famines, along with internal struggles and resulting plagues, would have made the Assyrian people view their gods as having failed them, leaving them open, perhaps, to the idea of a different god. You don't care, because Assyria is known for extreme brutality toward their enemies. Shalmaneser III memorialized this, on the city gates nonetheless. About 50 to 75 years earlier, he had placed on the gates of his palace in Balawat figures of where he would cut off the enemy's hands, their feet, and their heads and lay them around himself. As well as putting heads of enemies on spikes eight tall. Perhaps the most gruesome memorial depicts the Assyrians skinning and flaying their enemies, presumably alive, and then using the skin to decorate the city walls. Again, not nice people. You aren't losing too much sleep over their suffering and their struggles 
500 and something miles away. Now again, just to continue orienting yourself to some of the geography that we find within Jonah, again, you are no history buff, but you know enough to know that Tarshish is the furthest sailed trade port to the west. In fact, in the Old Testament, Tarshish ships were deep ships that did not return for three years. And while it's sometimes been confused with Tarsus in Sicily, you know that the names Tarshish and Tarsus are distinct in cuneiform and are different places entirely. Tarshish is much further west. It's on the southwestern coast of modern-day Spain on the Iberian Peninsula, where the Guadalquivir River meets the Gulf of Cadiz, an Iberian city that later became a Greek colony and was important for the trading of metals. It is so far west... It's the furthest west that trade would go, that it was even used as a colloquialism for going to the ends of the earth, much like we might say from here to Timbuktu. And on the return, the trips would often stop the northeastern ports of Ethiopia, do trade there in ivory, gold, and exotic animals before continuing on their voyage home. These deep ships that sailed to Tarshish frequently made berth in Joppa, which is on the Mediterranean Sea, just southwest of Israel, though at this time just outside of Israel's jurisdiction. This helps to orient us, orient you, to the thinking of an ancient Israelite around this time. But there's one additional step we need to take. And this is to understand the context of Jonah with regard to the religious history of Israel. You see, there's no people that have ever lived that have not been religious in some way or another. Even atheism, with its efforts to decry there is no God, has all the hallmarks of religion. So many of the movements and the organizations in the world today, when looked at objectively, are nothing more than religions. As I mentioned earlier, Jonah is going to be an unusual book. And it becomes apparent when we look at the structure of the Old Testament. As an ancient Israelite, the Old Testament would have been your book, even if you weren't following it. And we need to understand something about the Hebrew Old Testament. The Hebrew Old Testament is structured in a way that is not reflected in our English Bibles. And I'm talking about the ordering of the books. The arrangement. And we won't go into the reasons that they're different for now, but we do need to know that the Hebrew Bible was structured differently and how it was structured if we were to understand Jonah. The Hebrew Bible had three primary distinctions or divisions. The law, the prophets, and the writings. The law, the prophets, and the writings. The law made up the first five books. The writings were much of what was at the end. It included Ruth, Song of Solomon, and others. But the prophets, they were divided into two subsections. You had the former prophets, and you had the latter prophets. The former prophets was that portion of the Old Testament from Joshua to 2 Kings. And it tells a story. The former prophets from Joshua to 2 Kings tells a story. It is a history book or a collection of history books that tells a continuous story from Joshua through 2 Kings. More on that in a moment. The latter prophets include the Old Testament books of Isaiah through Malachi. And compared to the story of the former prophets, the latter prophets are a collection of statements or sayings or we might say prophecies. Now, 
If you've read these, you know that to put both of these categories, these former and latter prophets, one being history, the other being statements and sayings, to put them together under the same title as prophet is rather odd. They are so different in approach that they really feel like they don't belong together. Almost like oil and water, it doesn't mix. And yet there is, throughout these prophets, a unifying theme. And I'm indebted to the teaching of John Woodhouse in helping me to identify and walk through these themes and greatly influenced by the work he's done here. I'm just sorry that I don't and can't communicate the Australian accent along with this. The unifying theme of the prophets, former and latter, is the coming of the word of the Lord in the days of the prophets. It is the coming of the word of the Lord. What is emphasized in the former and the latter prophets alike is this. There is a God. And this God has spoken into human history. You see, despite the storyline of the former prophets, they're really not fundamentally concerned with wars and the rise and fall of kings. All of that is just at the surface. There's a reason they breeze over some kings, barely mentioning them. Much more than this, these books are concerned with the coming of the word of the Lord to the prophets. The writers are concerned with this wonder in human history that there is a God who has spoken into human history. And this word of God has spoken and it has directed and determined the course of human history. And that's what these books are concerned about. We see this in expressions such as the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And then a few verses or sometimes a few chapters later we read that such and such happened according to the words spoken by Elijah. God spoke into human history. History was then directed by the words which God spoke. And the former prophets tell us of the course of history that was directed and determined by the word that God spoke. It is perfectly appropriate and fitting then that these former prophets are bracketed, closed out by the latter prophets. They do not so much tell the story as record the content of the word of God which came through the prophets. So from Isaiah onward, they have these titles. You need to understand something else about the Hebrew Old Testament. The, the titles are not the same that we have. The titles are not your bold English titles at the beginning of a book. Those were put in by later editors. I'm talking about the title that makes up the first few words of every book of the Latter Prophets and are repeated throughout the Latter Prophets. It's titles that go something like this. The word of the Lord that came to Micah or the word of the Lord which Isaiah the son of Amaz saw or Jeremiah to whom the word of the Lord came. The content of these books is the word of God which was spoken into human history. The story was told in the former prophets, but the content is unfolded in the latter prophets. It is here, in the latter prophets, that we encounter this most unusual and strange book. The book of Jonah. 
Yet despite its strangeness, it's probably the best known of the prophetic books, maybe one of the best known books of the Bible. For example, if I were to pull you aside and ask you to tell me about Micah or Amos or Joel, my guess is you would struggle a bit. At least to articulate with any detail the message and the theme. But if I were to ask you about Jonah, well, everybody knows about Jonah. Everybody can tell me the story of Jonah. Even persons who are not particularly interested in the Bible can tell me about Jonah. Yet its strangeness, its peculiarities, are rarely noticed or recognized. And thus, what it is really about is often missed. What we're going to see as we go through this, this is a book full of surprises with unexpected twists. It contains parodies on what would have been familiar themes to the Israelite hearer. It is a book where the hero is also a villain. It's a book in which the word of the Lord accomplishes the totally unexpected. It is a book where pagans prove to be more theologically astute than the Lord's prophet. We are going to discover as we go through Jonah all sorts of unexpected surprises. But what we want to do by way of introduction is make sure that we stop to note that the inclusion of this book in a collection of books known as the prophets emphasizes its fundamental significance. And what is that fundamental significance? That the word of the Lord has come into human history. The fundamental theme that runs throughout the book of Jonah, what the book is about is God's word coming into history. The wonder of who God is here. The wonder of a God who speaks into human history. And that's what this book is about. The first 16 verses provide us with act one of a story that's going to unfold in four separate acts, more or less broken up by the chapters that we have. We're going to change it just slightly. And the opening scene of Act 1 is found in the first three verses that we read this morning. And right away we encounter something of the peculiarity of this book, the uniqueness, the strangeness of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. You see how strange that is, right? It's okay if you look to the person next to you, they probably are wondering the same thing. What is so strange about that? Why does that strike us as odd? Well, this Jonah, the son of Amittai, is something of an unusual figure. Readers of the Old Testament would have known of this Jonah, the son of Amittai, from 2 Kings 14, 25. We've already read that this morning. And we learn there that Jonah, the son of Amittai, was a prophet of God's mercy. He was active in the days of Jeroboam II. Again, that may not mean much to you until you stop to remember what we said a few moments ago. That Jeroboam II, as history of his reign summarizes, was a king who was wicked and corrupt. An evil king who followed in the ways of his father, Jeroboam I, the son of Nebat, who sinned and caused Israel to sin. He was a king who, to use biblical words, did evil in the sight of the Lord and led all of Israel to sin. The unexpected and the unusual thing is that Jonah, a prophet in the days of Jeroboam, an evil king doing evil in the sight of the Lord, brought no 
judgment as far as we know. Instead, he brought a positive word, a word of God's mercy, a word from God which in the days of such a king was a very unusual, a strange word. Because usually the words of the prophet under such a king as Jeroboam was what? Judgment, denouncement, exile. But not Jonah. Not Jonah. Jonah brought a word of mercy, a word of promise, a promise that was fulfilled. And at this point, all we know about Jonah is that. He's a prophet of mercy. Nothing else. But the reader of this book or the original hears the mention of Jonah, the son of Amittai, might wonder, in light of that, what sort of word will now come to Jonah, the son of Amittai? Well, this is the word that comes to him in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, among all the prophets of the Old Testament, I wonder if there's ever one who received a commission that was comparable to this. Go to Nineveh, this great city. In the ancient world, the city had become a symbol of powerful pagan pride. It was a powerful nation. It was a fully pagan nation. It was an arrogant nation. It was an oppressive nation. It was a nation full of injustice. It was sister to wicked Babylon the Great in biblical history. And this extraordinary word comes to Jonah. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. This scene is reminiscent of another scene earlier in Israel's history. Back before there was Israel. In Genesis 18, and you may want to study this on your own sometime to compare the context of Genesis 18, where the wickedness of those great cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, comes up before God. And just as there in Genesis 18, so here in Jonah 1, verse 2, the God whose word comes, the God who speaks, is shown by the word he speaks to be judge of all the earth not just the judge of Israel. The God who speaks here is the God who calls even Nineveh to account. He's not bound by Israel's geography. This God, this God who has spoken is the God who is the judge of all the earth and calls even Nineveh to account. Now, if you are one of those ancient peoples who are reading this story for the first time, your interest was probably piqued, your eyebrows raised when you heard the identity of Jonah, this prophet of mercy. Jonah, you might have asked. Secondly, his commission might have struck you as an extraordinary commission. Nineveh? But up to this point, the text has actually followed a very familiar sort of pattern. Perhaps you've already got your finger in 1 Kings, or in Kings, but turn to 1 Kings 17. Down in verse 8, we see a similar story, or at least a similar commissioning. 
The events are not as important to our story, but listen to how this story opens in verse 8. It's another story where the word of the Lord comes to a man who is a prophet with a command. In this case, it is Elijah. And we read, Arise, go to Zarephath. And then it continues in verse 10 saying, What? So he arose and went to Zarephath. This is a very common theme. It's a very common series of events. Arise and go, and the prophet arises and goes. If you were to read both the latter, the former and the latter prophets, you would see this over and over and over again. There's nothing at this point within Jonah to make us think that there is anything unusual going on. It's certainly interesting. It's certainly peculiar, this Jonah, this prophet of mercy, and Nineveh, the destination. But the pattern, we're familiar with the pattern. Now, here in Jonah, we see the similar fashion, these same terms, these same words used. But listen carefully, and I don't want you to look at your text. I know, I'm telling you not to read your Bible. You can come and find me later. Don't look at your text, just listen. Listen here carefully how the story of Jonah unfolds, and notice the third surprise here in this verse. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now you've probably got a but at the beginning of your verse 3. However, that adversative isn't in the Hebrew text. The translators recognize that this is wrong, and so they insert that for us to help us, but it steals and spoils some of the effect. This story has been told many times in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord comes to a prophet, giving him a command, and the prophet obeys the command. Not this time. Jonah arises. He arises all right, but he goes the other way. And it's not uncommon in the Old Testament for the prophet to have misgivings about the mission and the commissioning he's been given, but never was there a prophet like this one. Had not Amos, Jonah's, Jonah's own contemporary, living at the same time as Jonah, had he not just proclaimed in Amos chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Jonah can. And that's what's so peculiar. Never was there a prophet to whom God's word came, and he got up and ran in the opposite direction. The very opposite direction of the divine command. Here's Jonah. The last we saw of him, he was in Samaria. So we'll assume he's still down in Samaria. Joppa is just a little bit southwest of where he is. From your perspective, Nineveh is here to the east. Tarshish is as far to the west as it is possible to go. He heads as far west as humanly possible toward Tarshish. Jonah ran away, it says, from the presence of the Lord. And the remainder of this opening scene in verses 1 through 3 is occupied with the events of Jonah running away from the presence of the Lord. Never have we seen a prophet running from the Lord like this. This is strange. He goes down to Joppa. 
He finds a deep seafaring ship, secures passage, goes down into the ship, and we read away from the presence of the Lord. Now it's clear from what Jonah says later that he knows God is the God of all creation. He cannot successfully run from God, so what is he actually doing? Well, the answer is found again by looking to the former prophets. If you've still got your finger in 1 Kings 17, you're in the right spot. And the former prophets, they frequently described the prophet as standing before or in the presence of Yahweh to describe their prophetic ministry. It was a description of their job, their occupation in the presence of the Lord. For example, in 1 Kings 17.1, we read of Elijah again, the Tishbite, who is of the settlers of Gilead. He said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Then verse 2, it begins with that familiar saying, the word of the Lord came to him. You see, Jonah, what he's doing is trying to escape his job. He didn't even give a two-week notice before he heads toward Tarshish. He's trying to escape his role as a prophet. He's trying to run from the position as God's prophet. Now we might ask, why? Why would he do this? We'll discover the answer when we get to chapter 4. And what we will find is that the thinking of Jonah within that thinking is a very disturbing perversion and distortion of God's truth. But what we find here in chapter 1 is that his response to the coming of the word of the Lord to him sets up a very perplexing problem, which begins to be dealt with in the rest of chapter 1. For you see here, the Lord, the judge of all the earth has spoken, but this little man, this prophet, this son of Amittai, to whom the word of the Lord came, has run away to sea. He's gotten himself into a pagan ship and is sailing in the opposite direction. And the question we are left with at the closing of scene one within act one is what will happen now? The judge of all the earth has spoken. But this prophet, this insignificant prophet would seem to be thwarting the purposes of God. So scene one concludes. As the ship drops its sails and unfurls them, so the curtain drops on scene one and we are left in suspense. Until next week. Before we conclude though, I think it's important to reflect both upon our discussion of the book of Jonah as well as upon this opening scene. One of Jonah's most important features that will become even more apparent in the weeks ahead, but which is frequently, sadly ignored, is that despite his rebellion, Jonah has good theology, orthodox theology even. Jonah does not rebel because he misunderstands Yahweh. He rebels because he understands Yahweh. He knows God is the creator and controller of nature in chapter 1, verse 9. He knows he is in rebellion in chapter 1, verse 12. He knows God is his only deliverance in chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. He knows that God is gracious, compassionate, patient, and relenting, chapter 4, verse 2. In fact, he had already experienced that mercy despite Jeroboam's, the seconds, his sin and the wickedness of Jeroboam and the entire nation. Jonah's problem 
is in not letting his theology affect his life. In not responding in repentance and obedience to what he knows about God. You see, right belief does not always lead to right behavior. Even the angels, I'm sorry, even the demons know who Christ is and shudder. Or to put it in the words of James, faith without works is dead. Jonah's actions demonstrate that knowing is very different than trusting and submitting to God. See, our problem with understanding Jonah is that we want him to be logical. Instead, what we find is a prophet who's just like us. He knows his theology, but he wants to decide when and how to apply that theology to his life. He wants to decide when he has to obey. When confronted with a command he does not like, he refuses. And later, when he does not like what God does, he throws a temper tantrum. And yet over and over, God offers Jonah an opportunity to repent. We'll discuss how Jonah responds when we get to chapter 4. But for now, reflect on this. How will you respond? How do you respond to the hearing of of the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord has come. What are you doing with it? What will you do with it? You cannot read these first three verses without having to ask, without being confronted with the question, how do I respond to the coming of the word of God? Will you submit to it? Or will you be like Jonah who sails for Timbuktu in an attempt to escape obedience? We'll see it next week, but this does not end well for Jonah. His disobedience causes great suffering for himself and for others. Do not ever be deceived into thinking that your sin, your failure to respond in obedience to the hearing of the word of God only affects you. Your sin and disobedience has consequences that reach further than you may ever know. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say if you are here this morning and this is the first time you've considered what the word of the God, word of the Lord means for your life. What hearing God's word means and demands of you. If you have not repented and turned from your sins, then that is the first step you must take. It's the first response you must have to the coming to the hearing of the word of God. If you have questions, if you feel uncomfortable, then please grab me or someone sitting around you We would love to talk and pray with you to show you this God of mercy who's calling on you to repent and to believe. As we've already said, the word of the Lord has come. How will you respond this week? As you read your Bible, as you feel your conviction over sin, how will you respond in obedience? Or will you flee to Tarshish? Let's pray. Father, there is but one appropriate place to leave this morning. And that is with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving that the word of the Lord has come. Father, even more than that, the word of God 
was made manifest. It was made flesh in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And for that, we give you the most praise, the utmost glory, the utmost thanksgiving. Father, may we rightly respond to the coming, to the hearing of the word of the Lord. Would we be convicted over our sin? Would we desire to obey, to respond rightly before you? To bring you glory, to bring you praise, to be a part of seeing your kingdom come. Father, may the message of Jonah that we study throughout this summer, may it help us in our faith, in establishing and confirming within ourselves the difference between knowing right theology and believing right theology so that it leads to right living and obedience. Pray that there's not a person here this morning or a person who hears this message that is not convicted with the need to respond in obedience to the hearing of the word of the Lord. Thank you for your spirit which is mightily at work within us and through us. Continue to convict us over sin. And give us a heart that is not like Jonas. A heart that seeks to do the will of the Lord. In your name, amen.